Welcome to Concordia Journal Currents. My name is Jeff Cloa, Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology here at Concordia Seminary. And with me today, we're happy to have Dr. Joel Leyenbauer, the Executive Director of the Commission on Theology and Church Relations of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The longest title I've spoken in a while. Uh, all the way over from the other side of town. Welcome, Joel. Uh, also with us today to confuse matters is another Joel, uh, Joel Okamoto, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology here at Concordia Seminary. And we're here today to discuss and introduce a little bit the uh, upcoming issue of the Concordia Journal, the Spring 2010 issue, which is reprinting some classic essays on the doctrine of Scripture. And we printed these essays in anticipation of our September uh, uh, Theological Symposium here on campus uh, on the use of Scripture in the church. So uh, I welcome you and uh, uh, glad you're listening in on our conversation. I suppose the first question to ask and, and ponder a bit is, is for this issue of the Concordia Journal, we've decided to print some essays from the 1960s. Uh, 1960, 61, 65, early 1960s, um, before a lot of things happened in the LCMS. And essays which uh, apparently some people still find helpful and even in some cases are authoritative in some way within the church. Um, why go back to the 1960s? And why go back to people like Sasa and Price and Franzman? Well, I think anybody who knows or has read Sasse or Preuss or Franzman uh, won't probably need a long answer to that question. These are great scholars, great thinkers, great insightful men, and um, you can't date I think, in many ways, the kind of work that they produced, uh, particularly Franzman for me, although they're all great, but Franzman uh, uh, is such a creative thinker and such a mm -hmm. sharp thinker. And um, in some ways, I think it's really beneficial for us to be reading articles that kind of predate some of what most people would regard as the big controversies in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, because so much of what has been done since then has been done sort of in response to or in light of, mm. and uh, many of the truths uh, and insights in these articles have great application to those problems, but are able to come at them, I think, in a innocently more objective way because they're not directly addressing some certain controversy. I know that on the CTCR, sometimes the, the worst position to be put in is we're doing a document to deal with that controversial issue because right. it's all done in light of the controversy rather than just in a, in a more pure way to address a so certain issue. You can't issue. maybe start from the right starting point or you're forced to uh, reckon in a certain way because right. of the issue that you need to address. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but another way, they seem, maybe not consciously, but uh, they recognize larger issues that are, are much more clear today. Uh, the Franzman piece brings out uh, the story of the scriptures and recovering narrative as a category as well as the biblical narrative and uh, something that uh, has only come really into the conversation over the last couple of decades, but he anticipates that. Mm -hmm. uh, the question about the canon, right. New Testament canon especially, uh, after Elaine Pagels, Bart Ehrman, Dan Brown. Gospel of Judas. Right. Yes, uh, big issues, but uh, already in 1961, we have someone returning to the question and uh, bringing out what 
Luther and the Lutherans have been saying and pointing out kind of the development of that conversation. Uh, and the same with the, the Sasa piece, uh, Inspiration and Inerrancy, asking uh, about that basic, you know, those basic concepts, not denying them, but asking, have we thought about them? Are we consistent? Uh, are we thought about them well enough and are we really consistent with what we say about, well, the Holy Spirit and uh, Jesus Christ? And you know, those things remain big issues. And they're more clear now uh, right. than, than they were even back then. I think if people will read them, they'll find that they have a surprisingly contemporary feel. You know, some of the stylistic stuff, of course, has a little more dated feel to it, but the issues are very live issues. And um, so we'll plug, you know, to actually read them. <laughs> That's why we're printing them, right? Yeah. Well, perhaps it'd be uh, useful to, to just sort of talk about each of the essays and maybe the basic contents and uh, uh, what we might expect to find in them and, and what's useful, perhaps. Um, Joel, we, we asked you to consider a little bit the uh, Herman Sasse article. The title is Inspiration and Inerrancy, uh, Some Preliminary Thoughts. Uh, what is Sasse's goal in the essay? Uh, well, Sasse's goal in the essay is to, well, he says preliminary thoughts, but how about some basic thoughts yeah. about inspiration? Uh, what have we been saying about biblical inspiration? And really, his, his question is, is it truly biblical? Mm -hmm. And then what's the relationship between inspiration and inerrancy? Now, he presupposes, as the church has from the beginning, that the Bible is the written word of God, uh, that it is inspired, and that it is without error. But uh, he was concerned that from, from early on, he, uh, he cites as he had elsewhere, Augustine and Gregory as having adopted a, uh, an account of inspiration that was more rabbinic, was more uh, Hellenistic than scriptural. Yeah, sort of a psychological explanation well, of inspiration. Yes, he, he believed that, uh, right. uh, that it gave a psychological account of the scriptures and so to speak about the, the biblical writers as penmen and to speak about uh, suggestion or dictation uh, was trying to give us an account of something in terms of uh, psychology uh, that one wasn't, in his view, really scriptural and uh, also led to other kinds of problems. Or actually, I think that it goes the other way. Yeah, I mean, I have this here. He, he, he believed that uh, these fathers began with uh, a, their, an own, their own assumption about the, the Bible being a, a perfect book. All right. And uh, then they came up with a, an account of inspiration which fit their notion of what a perfect book had to be. Uh, and then he's, he believes that this, this is the kind of account that you find in the, uh, in, among others, the Lutheran Orthodox dogmaticians. Uh, of course, they use that language now. I have my, my peeper here who, he, well, he explicitly... What? what book is it? Yeah, <laughs> my, my Franz Peeper, <laughs> who, uh, who takes this up explicitly and, and says, no, this isn't, the, uh, this isn't what was meant by the dogmaticians. They used that language, but it wasn't meant to be a, a psychological explanation. He doesn't use that term but mm -hmm. against it. But uh, the, the larger issue about having a, an account of inspiration that fits your preconception of what the book has to be, right. uh, that, that's, a, that's an important issue, and he, he brings that up. And then his own uh, answer to that is to 
um, is to maintain that the doctrine of inspiration is an essential part of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and His work, which is to point to Christ, to lead us into all truth. And, uh, and I think then the notion of inerrancy has to do with uh, what does God want to do and what does God want to uh, lead us to know. Uh, and uh, so it's a matter of, I think, emphases. He's not trying to deny inspiration or inerrancy, but wants us to think about that and it still bears Well, it's interesting you raise the uh, locating inspiration within the realm of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peeper, whose volume one you have here, put it in as essentially prolegomena. So you talk about scripture first, and then you can come up with the rest of your dogmatics. Mm -hmm. I think in the systematics department now, you actually teach the doctrine of scripture within yeah. systematics three, which is yes, under the Holy under Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And you're, so you're intentionally sort of, or not reflecting Sasa, but you're at least in line with what Sasa was getting at then. We'd like to say we're in line with the Bible. With the, well, okay, maybe maybe we're both in line <laughs> with the Bible. That's a coincidence, though. <laughs> and and that, but that was an intentional choice, obviously. Yes. And, and uh, it was moved out of, if I recall, I had it in Systematics 1, mm -hmm. Doctrine of Scripture. Yes. So uh, why, was, why was I taught the wrong thing? I don't know, but it's obvious from you know, knowing you that you were. <laughs> <laughs> and it hasn't Just shaken kidding. out of me yet, right? <laughs> you know, one of the more provocative thoughts, I think, in this Sase essay, too, is toward the end where he mentions Chalcedon and the, you know, the teaching of the early church about the two natures of Christ as a possible analogy yeah. to the divine human nature of the scriptures. Um, you know, it's an analogy, and mm -hmm. so it's not perfect, but I think that's something that a lot of people will find sort of new and fresh and challenging to think about, that there is a, a real, true, divine human right. quality to the scriptures mm -hmm. where human doesn't necessarily mean Sinful or Sinful, bad, or, you know, or imperfect, you know, right. depending mm -hmm. on what your definition of perfect is. Right. So, uh, um, you know, and there are probably places where you have to push back a little on that, but mm -hmm. I think it's worth thinking about to correct some misunderstanding. Now, you mentioned you don't want to perhaps go too far with this. What are some potential problems with well, this? Well, let analogy? me actually pick up an advantage of it. Okay. The, uh, so we confess Jesus Christ to be true God and true man. He's not partly God and partly man, but completely both. And uh, one of the difficulties that's at least emerged with the kind of account that Augustine has that the dogmaticians use, it gives the impression that uh, it could be, lead to a kind of a docetism. Mm. Yes. And uh, uh, at least the analogy of the word, this incarnational picture, uh, reminds us that it's entirely divine and entirely right. human mm -hmm. uh, and not necessarily sinful or mm -hmm. misleading. Uh, but it, that, that's one of the advantages of it. Uh, at disadvantages, that there's only one incarnation and this is right. the incarnation of a person. There's a uniqueness uh, about it. That, mm -hmm. uh, uniqueness. Uh, another is that it doesn't, well, it, that's about as far as you can take it. In other words, it doesn't help us to explain where we got it from, canonicity. Right. Uh, it doesn't really help us in terms of interpretation or use of, of the scriptures, and you would need a, a further kind of account for those things. And for that matter, just, you know, the doctrine of inspiration doesn't really help you with that right. either. Right. 
Well, one thing we should uh, alert readers to that they might find a bit surprising is the way SASA uh, deals with the creation accounts. Um, using this divine human analogy, he, uh, he suggests, I suppose, but he does this actually in several other essays as well, that what we have in the creation accounts is not a you know, sort of blow by blow, you know, second by second account of creation. But what we have in the Genesis account, for example, is uh, what he calls a syncatabasis, a, a uh, condescension of God, where he uh, uh, reveals his activity in means that would be accessible to humans uh, of the day. So that if, if you know, the Genesis would have been written uh, with you know, kind of astrophysics or something like that, nobody would have been able to make sense of it until 1950 or whatever. So, so uh, uh, that doesn't mean we should expect it to match that. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but it also doesn't mean that, uh, at least according to Sasa, we should, we should you know, say because it says seven days, we have seven 24-hour days, and that's what it means. Any thoughts on that move that he makes there? Now, I, I know this might cause some people some concerns. I think we, we've all sort of been taught, first of all, that you know, Genesis isn't a, the, the Bible isn't a science textbook or something, you know, mm -hmm. and so we shouldn't expect um, the Bible to do what it wasn't intended to do. But these, you know, this, this whatever he calls it, law of condescension right. or, or whatever, is, a, I think, going to be a challenging thought for some people. It's a challenging thought for me. I'm try, I've, uh, it forced me to think through, you know, kind of, I sort of vaguely remember being cautioned against viewing the Bible when I was at seminary as, well, God's just kind of condescending here, you right. know, to us, you know, kind of ignorant humans, and in the sense that maybe there's some deception going on or something, right. you know. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of <laughs> insight in this, too, that, uh, you know, you, you said that, you know, if, if the, if Genesis were recorded, uh, you know, in light of modern-day physics or science, you know, couldn't have been understood until the 1950s, but there would also be a point, presumably, if the world went on long enough, where that, those theories would, would, would be, be outdated. Out of, right, or, 100 years from now, it would look right, silly. Right. right. And right. Saucy does emphasize that by saying that God spoke in this way that people of the day could understand, that doesn't in any way demean right. that way of speaking. In right. fact, they had insights you know, based on their way of looking at things that are much more profound than modern science textbooks. Right. So it's not a matter of, you know, bad or better or something. It's a matter of God's wisdom in knowing how to record this in a way that it was accessible to all people of all times and ages, that it, that it records truth, but that we need to be careful about reading into that truth what isn't actually in the text. Well, you know? it's written for his purposes, yeah. and, and we should be careful not to try to get our purposes out of the text. Well, that's his, yeah, I think his larger concern, that mm -hmm. if we, if we in come to it asking whether it is scientific or not, we're already yeah. framing the question. Framing wrong. the question, and he has this line here, instead of asking whether a certain narrative corresponds to our standards, mm -hmm. like scientific or historical, uh, we should ask, why did the biblical writer tell events and record words just the way he did? And what goes along with this law of condescension is what he calls a law of parallels. Mm -hmm. And so he points out there are two creation accounts. Right. Or uh, this just came up this week as we're recording this. This is the uh, seventh week of Easter and the, the reading uh, from Acts 
of course, the death of Judas. And upon hearing this, my youngest son, a nine-year-old, asked, didn't Judas hang himself? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a different account. And uh, it's not to say that the two can't be harmonized, but uh, I, Sasa is warning against immediately thinking it has to harmonize according to right. standards of accuracy or historicity or science that uh, we impose. And not to say that those things aren't perhaps relevant questions, but first we should ask, as you put it, you know, what is God up to? What is his purpose right. in these things? Right. Uh, Right. I like his analogy of, in that sense, Scripture as a, as a painting or as a piece of music. I mean, you would never say, oh, these two paintings contradict each other, you know, or two pieces of music contradict each other. Well, you might, but, you know, they're, they're, the point is there are different ways of expressing things in, in art and in literature, and that's not to push to the point of saying, well, there are factual you know, outright right. contradictions. And he, and, he, and he does point that out. He's not mm -hmm. advocating this at all. Right. Um, but as Joel said, if we focus on Scripture in that way, we're already, you know, kind of going down a road that is different, than, according to Sasse, than what was intended. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, in one way, we speak often about the Scriptures being inspired and therefore inerrant. But I think right. he is cautioning against thinking the Bible is inerrant in our terms and then arriving at a, a doctrine of it inspiration based that, on that fits it. Right. And uh, he does have a, definitely a point mm -hmm. there. Right, right. So how does this cohere with the uh, CTCR document on the inspiration of Scripture? Well, we'll just leave that alone. Yeah. <laughs> different, different webcast. Different webcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll save that one for another time. Um, uh, the, uh, the second essay that we've reprinted in the spring 2010 Concordia Journal is by uh, J.A.O. Price II, uh, the title, The New Testament Canon in the Lutheran Dogmaticians. And as you mentioned earlier, Joel, it seems a bit uh, uh, prescient in a sense that uh, Price raised this issue in 1961. Um, of course, the questions he is getting at is more internal questions uh, in some ways. Um, but the questions we have in our day really have some of the same well, issues. Uh, why don't we read the Gospel of Judas? Uh, how do you know that a book is inspired and should be part of the canon? Uh, we've operated for generations in the church as if this is just a given. There's 66 books. They're always in the same order. Uh, they never change. They're all printed with the same typeface. Um, uh, and it's a little bit difficult for us to, to think about that book as, as um, writings having different values and functions within the canon, that some of those books were debated even by Lutheran Orthodox theologians. And uh, I, I actually have to admit, I'm not sure why Price wrote this article. If it was uh, at the instigation of a particular problem, he doesn't really lay that out. He, he sets it out as just a study of the Lutheran dogmaticians and compares them with Luther. But I I wonder if he was trying to answer a specific question. I, I just don't. Do you have any knowledge, Joel? I don't. That's a good question. I yeah. didn't really. I mean, think you about just it. decide one day. Oh, I think I'll read the Lutheran dogmaticians and see what see what they say. Oh. But uh, nonetheless, a, a very uh, helpful and insightful article. If I could just summarize a little bit, uh, Price uh, walks through how the canon was viewed in the time of the Reformation and following, and what he concludes is that there's a distinct uh, development. Even, even shift, change in the view of canon 
from Luther and Chemnitz, who have essentially the same view of canon, uh, down to Gerhard uh, later in the period of Lutheran Orthodoxy. And that where Luther and Chemnitz saw the authority of Scripture or the canonicity of Scripture based on its content, uh, that is, what preaches Christ, to use Luther's terminology, uh, what inculcates the gospel. Um, Gerhard, perhaps because he's dealing with a different context, he's dealing with uh, rationalism in a much more uh, uh, problematic way. Um, Gerhard bases his view of inspiration or view of canonicity not on its content, but on its inspiration. So if it's inspired, it's in the canon. And so all the books are inspired, and there's no questioning, there's no homologumina, antilogumina, to use the old terminology. Uh, the book of Revelation, the book of James, which were questioned by Luther, shouldn't be questioned. Uh, if you question Second Peter, it's the same as questioning Matthew. And so Gerhard defends the equal canonicity of all the writings in the New Testament. And uh, Price is rather, I think, um, well, he's not sympathetic with that view. And, uh, and that's really what he lays out. No, you're right about this being uh, you know, ahead of its time and, and very timely now because uh, of the things I mentioned before. The canon of the New Testament now is uh, widely at least questioned. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some account of the development of the New Testament you know, has to be part of the basic uh, teaching of the church. Right. It didn't just, we haven't just always used it, and it was, it's not uh, self-evidently a divine book. Mm -hmm. um, it also points out that for Luther, he makes this point that had Trent not addressed right. the question of the canon, uh, Luther's view might just have gone unremarked upon. Right. Uh, and that, he, I'm not sure how clearly he brings it out here, but uh, Chemnitz's work on the canon, which is very extensive, is mm -hmm. very much in response to, to Trent. Well, yeah, quite. Quite. And, and, uh, but his appeal, uh, you know, and, and that's actually because I think Dr. Preuss was, of course, an expert in Chemnitz. The most extensive treatment is the, the Chemnitz part and quite helpful there. Right. Uh, and for us today, I think uh, it, one definite value is his, uh, his reading of of Chemnitz especially, right, and uh, asking us to go back and look at Chemnitz, who definitely is in line explicitly with the uh, early fathers, uh, Irenaeus and on. Right, he, he uh, uh, Chemnitz aligns himself with them, is the point. Right, as, as and Luther quotes did. them at, at, right. at length. Right, um, which, which in some ways, though, is, is rather troubling. I mean, one of my, I suppose, areas of study is, is the formation of the New Testament, including the canon, and I, I speak fairly regularly in churches and pastors' conferences on the topic. Um, uh, when, when I talk about the development of the canon and, and uh, you know, that the canon wasn't settled, you might even say till the 5th century. In fact, it's probably better to say not until the 16th century mm -hmm. that the canon was really settled. Uh, that causes some discomfort with people. Um, and I think it's because of the issues Gerhard was, was trying to respond to. That, that, uh, well, we all know it's inspired, and if you question one of the writings, well, that throws everything into doubt. Um, rather than asking, uh, what are the writings doing? Why, why are they there? 
uh, kind of back to the Sasa question, why did God give these writings? What purpose do they have? And how do they commend themselves is the point Price makes. Yes. They're autopistas. You know, they, they commend themselves. And, and not only did they commend themselves to the early church, but they continue to commend themselves to us today. Um, I mean, he has a, a tremendous quote here I, I really find helpful. He says, uh, the same scriptures which convinced the early Christians that they were truly God-breathed books convince us of the same. If we approach them with the attitude which Christ requires of all those who will worship him and be his disciples. Now, perhaps the Lord in his wisdom has dealt with the canon in the same way he did with the text. There is confusion, uncertainty, and a host of unanswered questions, yet the scripture continues to accomplish its mighty acts among men. And so what I think Price is getting at is, is what Luther was trying to do, is, is, what is what is God doing with the text is the real question. Uh, what is he doing through this text to us uh, rather than I need to defend this because, well, for whatever reason, someone is challenging it or it causes uncertainty over here. Yeah, there's going to be uncertainty. Yeah, there's going to be unanswered questions. Um, but it kind of doesn't matter is, is what Price is getting at. Yeah, I, this is over simplistic, I'm sure, but I wrote down a little truism trying to sum up this article in like in one phrase and uh, you can react to it. But what I wrote down was because the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is an article of faith, uh, the canon as a list of books cannot be an article of faith. Mm. So, you know, because the only way the canon could be an article of faith is if somehow Scripture itself, you know, as the inspired Word of God told us exactly what the canon right is and there, it doesn't. There, yeah, there's so no list that was right. inspired. So right. precisely because it is an article of faith, the doctrine of inspiration, the canon can't be. That mm -hmm. maybe again a little simplistic, but it helps me. You know, I've struggled with this issue of the canon over the years. We get a lot of questions, you know, one of the things we do as a CTCR is answer questions that people send in and we get a lot of questions about the canon, people trying to sort this out, you know, and it's troubling to them. I mean, it's, ge oh, it's yeah. genuinely yeah. troubling, you know. Yeah. What do you mean? You know, we don't know for sure, you yeah. know, huh? yeah. you know, my goodness, we're talking about the Word of God here, you right. know. But right. this sort of paradoxical thing, I think, helps that, you know, uh, unless God had put into, you know, the inspired scriptures, uh, you know, we're, we're, we need to, by the same faith that we accept the inspiration of scripture, accept the fact that there's always going to be some, uh, you know, ambiguity that is, we can live with and we have to live with, you know, and God intended us to live with just as we live with ambiguity in every mm -hmm. area of life. And I was really helped too by Preuss's constant assurances of how the fathers that we revere, Luther himself, didn't let this bother him. Right. You know, Not a big deal. Uh, yeah. There's another feature there. I, I really like how you put that. Uh, it goes along with I don't know if Sasa said it, I don't remember he said it in this place, but I know in other places that inspiration is an object of faith, right. not of observation. Right. right. And going along with that. Uh, but because of that, and the same with the Holy Spirit, you, you can't see the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and his activity. Uh, what you can see, though, and what we do know of God is definitively Jesus. And so just as uh, Sasa wanted to link the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ mm -hmm. together and right. God and His Word. Mm -hmm. 
which is really the right move. Uh, so also, you know, the answer, you, you've raised the, the, the problem, and any account of canonicity has to relate not only to the Holy Spirit, but also to Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God, as right. the Word of God, as the Son of God. Right. And uh, by linking it to uh, the Gospel and the Apostles, mm -hmm. and uh, this is what Irenaeus does, and this is what, right. mm -hmm. what Chemnitz picks up on, uh, we have not a closeout mm -hmm. argument, mm -hmm. but uh, definite reasons for saying these books, uh, these books are the Word of God. These books bring us Jesus Christ. They right. bear Christ truly. Uh, and, you know, the distinction between homologumina and antilogumina right. uh, has its place, mm -hmm. and it should. Uh, the distinction between the two canons, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, has, its, has its place. And uh, we can have confidence that uh, these writings truly present Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. They truly show us His God. Uh, and because they are truly of Christ, they bear the Holy Spirit and, and the like. You know, this is speculation, but I wonder if something like that, well, why didn't God tell us exactly, you know? Mm -hmm. But I wonder if the danger, I'm not God, but, you know, it would have us end up worshiping a book, right. you know, rather than worshiping Jesus right. Christ. And you see that, obviously, in world religions and in cults, you know, where the book is, mm -hmm. becomes the object of worship. And I, I think probably that temptation exists in our circles too, you know, worshiping the Bible. Right. Well, um, Franzman talks about this a little bit in mm -hmm. his essay, right. actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, one, one thing I do often with when I do presentations is uh, instead of starting with the Bible, I actually start with Jesus. <laughs> so what Jesus do you get out of the canonical Gospels? And then let's look at the Gnostic Gospels and what Jesus do you get out of those? And, and it's not just, you know, one is inspired and one is not, because both groups, Christians and Gnostics, or whatever you want to call them, would have claimed inspiration or some kind of divine source for their books, but you end up in a very different place when you read them. Uh, they don't they don't urge Christ, and and uh, uh, so it's 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 uh, it's one thing to make a statement about their origin, but that doesn't really get to why they're there in the first place. You know, they're there for for the Spirit's purposes, and and if we just read them, <laughs> and use them according to His purposes, then these questions become less significant. We're, we're persuaded. Persuaded, yeah. The, the, the Spirit does yeah. His work on us just as He did with those who first wrote and received them. Yeah. Which is, is not an answer where you can check a box off, unfortunately, mm -hmm. or write a CTCR document, right. maybe. But, right. but uh, It does raise a question, though. You know, what does it mean to read them rightly? <laughs> <laughs> that's why you put the Franzman essay. Well, that's why the Franzman essay is there. <laughs> Correct. So perhaps we should move on to, uh, to Franzman. And... Uh, a little bit of background on this. Uh, um, the essay was actually written by uh, Franzman in 1965, seven theses on Reformation hermeneutics, and then was adopted by the CTCR in 1969. So uh, uh, not only a, a, a personal or a, a scholarly work in a sense, but also then became recognized <laughs> as canonical <laughs> in some way uh, uh, within the LCMS. Um, now, for those of you who have not read Franzman, you're in for a treat. I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous writer. Um, be aware that his style is, is a bit... Uh, uh, poetic. Poetic. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not as clear. In fact, I, uh, in, in my hermeneutics course, I've started uh, uh, translating this essay 
for students to read because it's there's too much Latin and mm -hmm. the, the analogies don't work and his 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 phraseology is just a little too elegant uh, for for perhaps uh, the average student so at least beginning student but uh, tremendous material uh, here and Joel maybe we can let you pick out some highlights here yeah just to pick up just that last point everything that Franzman writes is like a a really wonderful to me but deep sermon I yeah mean, he's no, got kind is. of a sermonic right. style he's proclaiming you know as he's mm -hmm. explaining and it's just for that reason it's a spiritual experience yeah, kind is. of to I mean, read. his commentary on Matthew is, is just yeah. stunning yeah. yeah it's not just yeah. intellectual it's mm -hmm. it, it speaks to you and it speaks right. the gospel to you but it's it's seven theses you know let that put you off it's yeah. uh, you know the theses are pretty crisp and one mm -hmm. way of summarizing would be just to go through and you know read the seven theses because they're not long but right. uh, I won't do that but um, that I, I really love his opening illustration to illustrate the first the first thesis which is you know you walk into a room and, and a couple of guys are talking about something and you're you understand every word they say but you have no idea kind of what they're talking about or you right. might conclude wrongly what they're talking about unless you know what it is they're talking about and so his right. first thesis is really that hermeneutics is a circular process which sounds mm -hmm. kind of like a postmodern thing to say in a way but yeah. it, you know is so true that it goes from the words to the thing that the words are talking right. about the primary subject matter then back to the words and you right. keep repeating that but you have to know the, the subject matter. You have to know what, those, what the intent, purpose of those words is, or you're just not going to get the words right. right. I mean, he has the example yeah. of uh, the word justify. Right. Uh, you know, to a, to a theologian, obviously that means one thing. To a lawyer, that means something else. And to a typesetter, that means something completely different. Right, right. Uh, so you hear the word justify or co a conversation about how do you justify this. Right. You walk into the middle of that conversation, you're not going to know what it means. Yeah. Uh, unless you know the topic beforehand. Yeah, and right. and that's a lot more complicated in some ways than it sounds, you know, right. for us Lutherans who kind of have learned the right answer to all of this. But right. we're doing a little bit of a family home Bible study at home. We started a couple weeks ago with our kids and some of their spouses or significant others. Um, none of our children's spouses or significant others are Missouri Synod Lutherans or even Lutherans, you know. So they're not used to a lot of this language, and it's. I thought of that as I read this because it's, I could relate to this. You know, we're using words, and right. you can even get pretty far into the conversation until you realize that, wow, that's not the way they're hearing that word that we're using. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's critical for even preachers, pastors in this day and age when they're putting their sermons together to think about what Franzman is saying here. You know, you can use all the words you want, right. but if people don't get what you're talking about, it's, it's, you're not they, communicating. You're not, you're not communicating right. at all. So yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's interesting you raise the issue of this being sort of postmodern because having read this again, I'm convinced, and don't, I hope Jim Feltz doesn't watch this, but I think his, his uh, hermeneutics book is really just Franzman's essay with postmodern language window dressing on it mm -hmm. because he, he raises exactly the same issues and goes in exactly mm -hmm. the same direction. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Jim would, would admit that, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. So, so the next question is, okay, if, if it's... This, the technical terms are verba, race, verba, words, the thing that it's about, and the words, yeah, topic. What is the topic or the primary subject matter? And it, it will come as no surprise to good Lutherans that the topic, the subject matter, is justification by grace through faith. But Franzman really helps, I think, again, homiletically almost to help us understand just how radical 
you know, that, that doctrine is and that gospel is. And then he goes to this narrative style of unpacking this mm -hmm. kind of through the scriptures, through the right. Old Testament, through the New Testament, and just helping us to remind ourselves, even as Lutherans, of, of it's so easy for us just to, you know, flippantly kind of use that phrase right. and to think we know what it's talking about. We need to relearn it every single day. You know, we need to live in it every single day, and it needs to be fresh for us so it can be fresh in our proclamation of it to people. And we can kind of um, almost forget, you know, how to read the Bible unless we recognize the radicality of what that subject matter is about. And, and he talks about false races, you know, false centers or subjects of the Bible, one of which is inspiration and inerrancy. Right. You know, uh, not the, again, you know, there's not truth in that truth and other truths, but it's not the center. Right. You know, and if you make it the center, things go horribly wrong. Right. You know, so you can take something good, you know, and true, but when you make it the center rather than part of, you know, the, the whole web of interrelated truths, you're going to end well, you up in lose, the wrong place. You lose the gospel. Right. You, you really, really do. And, and yeah. you know, we've seen this in American evangelicalism, Protestantism. Right. You know, right. it's, they make this the central matter something, something other. Something else. Sovereignty than, of God you know, or whatever it is. Legal you know. codes, right. you know, moral life. Right. Or, you know, uh, kind of being faithful to yourself, you right. self-expression. Right. You know, I mean, we see it all over the place. Yeah. I'll just finish up by saying he closes out by not give us, give, giving us any excuses, though, either. You know, right. just once you figure out, oh, it's all about the radical gospel, you know, you still got to go back to the text. Go back to the text. Or right. do the hard, mundane, tiresome Jeff Cloa work, you know, of kind of trying to figure out, you know, what's the history, what does the text, you know, really say, all those kind of things. And, and I love that about Frosman, too. He's, no excuses, you know. Right. Um, um, the gospel is as pure as it can be, um, but we've got to live our lives out there in the real world, even in terms of the gospel, in some ways, as including the doctrine of sanctification. You right. know, in that sense, too, he says right. that so strongly, some Lutherans who have gotten lazy might challenged a little bit yeah. by that. So. Yeah. Well, when he says justification, I mean, he makes it quite clear. It's not justification by grace through faith in opposition to semi-Pelagianism or synergism, right. but right. rather it's shorthand for what he calls the radical gospel, which is God was in Christ, yeah, reconciling the world to himself. Or to use maybe New Testament language that Jeff Gibbs would like, the dynamic reign of God, you know, yeah. focused in Christ. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, it's not the, that sort of the doctrinal proposition. Right, yeah. right. Uh, it's more, and he, he does cite the apology, mm -hmm. but it probably would be better to have cited a... Small uh, call? Small call, yeah. <laughs> uh, just like what Luther does. Yeah, yeah leave it to the systematicians. <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, is the one who cited the right, apology. Right, So in these three essays, we have uh, really dealing with the, the origins of the Bible, inspiration, its collection in the canon, and then its interpretation. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of covering all the bases. Uh, and I think it's rather interesting. I mean, even if you have, as you said, uh, a, a perfect doctrine of inspiration, that doesn't mean you've gotten the point of the Scriptures down. And uh, you're going to miss the point of the Scriptures if you don't have a correct understanding of inspiration. I mean, it all, it all flows together. 
and uh, and maybe that's a bit of a lesson for us. Uh, you know, it's easy to focus on sort of one thing and raise that up as the only thing, and and as you say, get get the wrong center. He's uh, got another great analogy, and he's he's wonderful with analogies. But this arrow, yeah. you know, well, that's scripture as a perfect yeah. arrow. We should Beautiful. let them read that because yeah. that's, a, <laughs> yeah, okay. don't, don't, that's, that's right. one of the best uh, yeah. little paragraphs. Yeah. Uh, you you got to read that at the end of the essay. Yeah, we'll let you. Yeah, let you enjoy that one. Right. Um, right. Very, very good. Very good stuff. Um, not to steal any thunder, but no, uh, that's right. know, let, let them do Worth it. Worth reading. So. Um, I know we're running short on time, but any observations about where this might push us as, as theologians, as pastors, as readers of the scriptures? I don't know if this really directly answers that, but I, I just think people will, again, I just want to encourage them to actually read these articles. I think you'll find them helpful, not just kind of academically and theologically, but personally and pastorally. And I think they're critical. All three of them in some ways are, are critical for us to go about our task or the, the truths that they communicate of, of really proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel today. I think it's, which is, there's no more difficult work, you know, um, but no more joyful work either, you know, and there's a certain, I think, freshness, really, that comes with these articles that are 40, 50 years old, but they're fresh, you know, and I think they can help freshen people's preaching and their living. They're not just dusty articles about dusty theological topics. Mm -hmm. so. uh, well, I almost hate to say this. Yeah, I know. We should just stop on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned my own take on uh, you know, the importance of the Franzman piece, bringing out not only the concept of narrative, but also bringing out the biblical story, and that's mm -hmm. become such an important right. topic. And uh, so for him, the scriptures, what, what, what do they convey? They convey a certain story. Right. Uh, if you want an account of the origins of the New Testament canon, and for that matter, the canonicity of the Old Testament for Christians, it depends on a certain story right. about God in Christ. If you want uh, an account of inspiration and inerrancy uh, that coheres with that, it has to be uh, Christ who, from whom the Spirit, right. you know, with, with the Father comes. And uh, the, uh, but I, I have to wonder about, uh, well, we should ask about the story. Uh, including Franzman's story, which uh, has some wonderful features, but for instance, the Mosaic Covenant yeah. has no real place, and then the Jew-Gentile business yeah, has no real place. Uh, yeah. His way of casting it about you know Jesus opening Christ opening a way to God. Mm -hmm. uh, you you borrowed Jeff Gibbs about dynamic reign of God. That's mm, maybe a little different. Uh, those. Yeah. That's not to criticize Franzen as much as, boy, he's really set us on a, on a path, on a path yeah. that, that leads us to, uh, to reflect on some mm -hmm. questions that remain today, are, are much clearer today, yeah. it seems to me, and given us uh, a real resource to, uh, to do that. To do that, yeah. Well, on that note, uh, I'd encourage you to, uh, uh, listeners out there, to uh, make plans to attend our theological symposium in September of 2010 here on the campus of Concordia Seminary. Uh, Stephen Fowle of Loyola University will be our keynote speaker, our main presenter. Uh, we'll also have Joel Okamoto and Joel Leyenbauer uh, presenting uh, at the conference. And the goal is to figure out uh, how we use scripture to do theology and uh, reflect on that. Are we using it consistent with, with what it's been given to do? 
and how have we uh, used it in the LCMS. And next year's symposium then will build on that and how do we use it in preaching, in the preaching task. So as you say, the, you know, the ultimate goal is the proclamation of the gospel. So, so again, we invite you to, uh, to participate and join in the conversation and uh, uh, look forward to this uh, Concordia Journal in your mailboxes. Thank you.